Good morning, church. So spring, spring has come. We're just going to declare it. Punxsutawney Phil said it was going to be an early spring, so we're just going to embrace that. Spring is coming. We are embracing it. Uh, we're jumping back into our series in Acts after just a short jaunt through the letter to the church in Ephesus. We are coming back to join Paul in Acts 21. And so as we lean back into our our vision, we really began that series. I was convicted to preach Ephesians and said, let's have, let's have a nice lead in to Ephesians. So I preached all of Acts 1 through 20 to get there because that's what about when we see Paul finishing his journey back as he's heading back to Jerusalem, meeting with the Ephesian elders and encouraging them. And then he had this letter that he wrote years later back to them. And so we have been studying that for about a year's time now. And what a better timing, I think, to lean back into our greenhouse imagery and our growth. And so we've got some uh, greenery and some plants that we are, I believe are going to be growing over the coming weeks as we truly head into official spring, which we are all longing for. If you're newer to our family, our community, that's who we want to be, is like a greenhouse. It's part of our vision. It gives a snapshot or a picture of what we intend to be, people who are always growing, who are growing deep roots in, in our faith in Jesus and are bearing fruit that would bless others. The scriptures speak much of that kind of imagery of growth and life and fruit and blessing. We also want to see new shoots. That's a significant part of our, our value, whether it's the new shoots that God entrusts to our families as they grow organically, as we're celebrating with the Hogans and hopefully celebrating with the Shoebridges sometime soon. New organic life grew, growth. But we also want to see people coming to know Jesus for the first time. That's, that's really what that value is, new shoots, new life. And God has already planted us in fields beyond the greenhouse into fields to be the ones who are sowing seeds and seeing the harvest happen. And you are in a context like nobody else in this room. It's unique. Some of us share some of those fields, whether it be a neighborhood or a workplace or living in a certain city or suburb area. We clearly share that we are in this region together, unless you're here visiting from out of town, and we welcome you too. But we recognize that every one of us has a unique, specific field that we are called to that nobody else can reach. And that should be both daunting and encouraging, because that's what God's intention is for us, to send us into the fields. Jesus said to his disciples in John 4, look up and you will see that the fields are white for the harvest. There's a sense of we often need to look up, away from ourselves. Hopefully we're not just navel gazing, but sometimes we're just looking at the steps right in front of us in our life. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, look up and see and he was also saying, see with spiritual eyes, that there are, there are lost and hurting and needy people everywhere you turn. We are some of those as well. But we, have, we are like beggars who have found where the source of bread is, right? And we're just telling other people where that is. We know the harvest comes in the fields, not in the greenhouse. So thank you for this place. Thank you for this time that you've already ordained. Before the foundation of the world, you saw this very moment and we're in it. That's how big you are. And so now meet us as we seek to meet with you and push to the margins. Anything that would distract us and divide our attention from hearing from you and you alone. Lord, we want to do that work, but we also need your help to move the things that we can think about later, to move the things that we can't do anything about today that will come with tomorrow, 
that we might be present and commune with you and hear from you and respond to you in these moments. So speak, Lord, for we are here listening. I pray for our young ones that they too hear your voice, but above all would know of your love for them, how, how deeply you love them and even pursue them now at this age to grow them up in you in every way. Let our teachers be examples of your love and grace and truth that they would walk with you all of their days. And all of this we pray, Lord, your whole church prays for your glory and for our joy in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Well, we left Paul on a beach for a year. That's not too bad. But we've been eager to get back to him and to join him in his journey. That's why I had Dwight read that last bit of Acts 20 as he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders. They're praying together, weeping with him. And for the last year, we've been seeing his letter his heart on paper back to them. He wrote that a number of years later when he was in Rome, but this commenced the journey that would lead him to that point. And so that brings us into this context. We know that Paul, if you remember even earlier in Acts 20, he's, he's going to Jerusalem because he is constrained by the Spirit. This is verse 22. In other words, he says, I can't do anything else. And really, he lived his whole life in his ministry that way, constrained by the Spirit. Even when others would say, Paul, it'll cost you your life, it'll cost you your freedom. He says, so be it. I've already given up my life to the one who gave his for me. Jesus of Nazareth, my Lord, my Savior, my King. In that final sermon I preached on Acts 20, I left us with this prayer, and I thought it would be a good prayer to launch us back into Acts. I prayed, constrain us, Holy Spirit. Give us no other way or desire but your will and yours alone for your glory to be known and seen through us, your church. I think that prayer is just as true today, a year later. So constrain us, Holy Spirit. I think Acts 21 is such a real picture of the life of a follower of Jesus, things that I want to be absolutely true of my life, and I, I would expect that you long for them too. Even, even in this narrative of Paul's journey, we see three things that I think we would pay almost anything to have. They, they far exceed any monetary value in this life. Deep relationships. That was number one. Number two, Hearing and knowing the voice of God, and therefore the very will of God for your life. And number three, to live with a sense of confident purpose. To know that what you are about is exactly what God has given you to do. This is life and life to the full that Jesus proclaimed. I think there are deep longings for each of us because it's what we've been created for community, to know others and to be known, to not be alone, to know the will of God for our lives and to live with this confident purpose in all that we do. Now, we know Paul is a unique man with a unique call, and none of us are called in that same way. And yet that doesn't mean that his life 
doesn't serve as a template for all who would follow Jesus. That's what he said to the Corinthians when he wrote to them, follow me, follow my example, because I'm following Christ, writing to a people who never met with Jesus, never knew him. And we've often prayed as leaders, I know I have, Lord, help me be able to add that kind of boldness to humility. Because I'm sensitive to that. Come follow my way of life. I'm so confident that I'm closely following the ways of Jesus that others could follow me and ultimately be following Jesus. And if you're like me and you think about that potential, whether you're a leader of many or just a leader within your home or a friend trying to encourage another friend to walk with Jesus, we would hesitate to say that, wouldn't we? And so my prayer is often, Lord, help me, help me get to a place where that could be true. And that statement could be true, not arrogantly, but truly humbly. So Paul serves as a template for us as people who are trying to follow the ways of Jesus. Jesus himself lived with these very same characteristics at the core of who he was, deep relationship, deep community. Obviously, hearing the word of God, his Father, and responding to him and him alone, and with a complete sense of purpose, direction, and vision in everything that he did. Isn't that what we would want? Is there any greater prayer that we could have this morning than to see those things start to grow in our lives, in our faith? The reality is we will give our lives away to something or to someone or to any number of things in bits and pieces. We are called, or I should say invited, to give our life away to the one who promises to give eternal life in its place, the one who promises to give us this sense of purpose and mission, and confidence in all we do. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, he has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I could preach a whole sermon on that verse. Just to simply hear the promises of God and believe, eternal life is given. And we may spend the rest of our earthly days trying to live in response to that. But we don't earn salvation, heaven, grace. wouldn't be grace any longer. We simply hear and believe. Even if we say that sounds, too good to, that sounds too good to be true. We hear and believe and Jesus promises we have eternal life. We will not be judged but will pass from death to life. Often when Jesus spoke of entering life, it was twofold. It was certainly with the thought of eternity in mind, of a heavenly home forever. But the more I think you press on the way he lived and spoke and interacted and said, even in John, I've come to give life and life to the full, he's meaning this happens now. This begins now. Eternal life happens now. To be eternal, it can't have really a beginning, can it? And so it begins now as we become aware of it. The invitation to have life and life to to the full, to pass from a deadened state to a living state, aware of the Spirit at work and the spiritual realms and all that that means. We want all the fullness of the life that Jesus, you promise. We would pray like that Father, that Father's prayer, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And so, Lord, that is our prayer even this morning. Let's look at these three. I recognize in some ways they could be standalone sermons. I thought this morning, I'm giving you three TED Talks. 
somewhere in the 10 to 15 minute range, and then I'm going to try to tie those together. But that's what it somewhat feels like as we see these uh, three characteristics that are core to who Paul is as he follows Jesus. One, deep friendships, deep relationships. Look at the kind of relationships that Paul has beginning again in chapter 20, verse 36, as he's with the Ephesian elders. He's kneeling and praying with them. They are embracing Paul. They are weeping, kissing him, sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. There he, and then he moves, and there he is in Tyre. In Tyre, a city that, by our records and by most historians' accounts, Paul didn't spend much time in at all. Certainly compared to some of the other cities, like Corinth and Ephesus, that he spent months to years in. Tyre, he seems to have just passed through a couple times. And look at this a very similar snapshot of the relationships he had in this city with others. He seeks out the disciples and he stays with them. First note, they didn't seem to know he was coming. Communication wasn't quite what it is today. And in fact, they didn't know their exact journey back to Jerusalem. And you heard that when they, even Luke describes how they had to travel on the lee side of Cyprus. That was just because of the winds. They had no, no engines, no motors. They or truly had to sail by wind and so they didn't know maybe even exactly where they would get to come into port. So to write ahead and say, we're going to come through Tyre, he may not have been able to do that. So someone knocks on your door tonight, not someone, probably at this point a group of six, seven, could have been more and say, hey, we're brothers. Now Paul's reputation would have preceded them, even if they hadn't met him. And we're here to stay. Can we stay with you for a week? How are you receiving that group of seven Weary travelers who have just been on a ship for days on end. Are we ready for that kind of hospitality? They, they were. They welcomed him. And then look in verse 5. When our days were ended, this is Luke writing, so clearly you see the we and the hour. He is with, with the team at this point. When our days there ended, we departed and went on in our journey. And they all, not just those who housed them, but all the believers in the city of Tyre came with the wives and children, as if that had to be pointed out to describe the all, everyone, there, there was a family involved. They all came, to, they accompanied us until we were outside the city. What a, what a farewell. And again, just like we saw in Miletus, kneeling down on the beach, we all prayed and we said farewell. What a picture of, of community, of deep relationship. And then in Caesarea, he stays with Philip and Philip's family. Maybe Philip only had young daughters. He probably had a bigger family, but let's just give the, get the picture that we are given here. He stays with Philip. Now, if you know some of the story, Philip left Jerusalem. Remember, he was the one that he's called the evangelist because God just gave him this gift of evangelism. He goes into Samaria. He preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. This is Acts 7, 8, 9, kind of that storyline. Philip left Jerusalem because of Paul's persecution. Paul was ravaging the church, had just overseen the stoning of Stephen with pleasure, and was, was, was arresting and putting to death as many believers as possible. Paul thought that was his mission from God. He thought he was doing God's will because anyone that would claim Jesus as Lord, as God, is a blasphemer and deserved death according to the law. Paul was zealous. But that's why Philip and so many others scattered out of Jerusalem. 
And here he is, now many years later, of course, but welcoming this man into his home with his young daughters. And something has drastically changed. And how much time would that have taken to believe and to trust a man who had been a murderer to come into your home? Four young unmarried daughters in that, in that day, they're likely in the range of eight to teenage, those four. And Philip is openly welcoming Paul and the whole team to dwell with him in his home. Then as they leave even Caesarea, this is verse 13 of 21, Paul answers them, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? So what a dual picture of both their own heart for Paul. That they too are going to miss him and they know he's going ultimately to his the end of his freedom and probably the end of his life. That seems to be what the Spirit has been indicating. And Paul says, you're weeping and you're breaking my heart. What deep relationships to have friendships like this. First, we just need to dismiss the notion that Paul was a harsh man, so driven that he was just a bulldozer with everyone that he met. He even admits that in some of his writings that I come across harsh because I'm not with you. you. You need to hear this. And there's an urgency to his tone. But when I'm with you, I'm gentle and I'm meek. And that was the reception that Paul had almost everywhere he went. People didn't just honor and revere Paul for his call. They loved him. And they missed him. And they even liked him. You know there's a difference, right? We're all called to love, to love all peoples. We're not called to like. Now it's great when those two go together. And the reality is we can really grow in our love and maybe never come to truly like someone. And some of that is simply harmony and relationship or personality or interest. But for Paul, he had a whole lot of people seemingly everywhere he went who not only loved him but liked him. No, Paul, don't go. Don't leave us. Stay. They, they needed Paul for the teaching, for the encouragement, but they also liked him in his relationship and the fellowship and the time with him. That meant he probably had a sense of humor. He probably served alongside them. He probably became like one of them. We're not told how he built these kinds of deep relationships, even as you're sitting here processing, saying, man, I long for that. I long for people to do life with at such a, at such a level that when we have to part, we are weeping because God is calling us to other things, to know and to be known like that. And so we're not told that, but I think we can deduce something or a few things by just the description of Paul's journey and then knowing Paul's writings. Paul was relentlessly encouraging. And we just saw that in Ephesians, and that's, that, that follows suit in almost every one of his letters. He begins with some form of, I thank God for all of you. Some, some sense of, I miss you. I long for you. And he often ends his letters with a similar thing. Greet so-and-so. Greet so-and-so. I hope to come to you soon. Send me provisions. This just deep relational language comes out, let alone the encouragement they get in the Lord from him, which we saw in Ephesians. He reminds them how deeply they are loved by God, who they are, that they are chosen, what their identity is, how much God loves them and will never leave them, and all that he hopes for them. He was relentlessly encouraging and certainly that continued when he was with the believers in presence. So be relentless. 
in your encouragement. It can go a long way. There's probably someone not too far from you today who needs that kind of encouragement. Whether it's a note, a text, an email, hey, how about coffee or lunch this week? Speak encouragement into their life. Second, we know that Paul, and this probably will stretch us more than the first, Paul relied, if not depended, upon the hospitality of others. And he wasn't afraid to ask. Now, he, he, he earned his keep, so to speak. He was a hard worker. We know that. But instead of staying in a public house, he always found the believers and invited himself in. I'm sure, I'm sure he would read the room, and if that wasn't okay, they would have found another place. But he depended upon it. He depended upon that hospitality. And when you stay with someone, living in their home, now think about the culture in that day. You didn't pop on the television that night. What were you doing as soon as the sun went down? Lighting the candles or the lamps and talking with one another for hours, praying with one another, talking about Jesus, who he was, talking about the letters that Paul has been writing, his journeys, telling the stories, them sharing the stories of what God is doing, the oppression that they're facing, the persecution, the fears. And you're doing that night in and night out, eating together, then serving together, going into the city that next day, going into the Agora, and just doing life together, looking for opportunities to serve and to speak of Jesus. It's like short-term mission trips for anyone that's been on, on those, just bind in relationship. You're purposeful, you're in close confines, you're being stretched all in the same way. If you're sick, you're sick together, you're just as tired together. And I, I, some of the strongest relationships I have still in my life today were birthed 20-some years ago in those kinds of contexts. Paul always seemed to live in those kinds of contexts. That will grow deep relationships. And how different is that than our strikingly hyper-individualistic culture that we live in today? More and more people live alone. Less and less people in our culture welcome in and invite. Will your friends come into town, they stay in a hotel. No, we don't have a, a third bedroom for all of your kids and three extra bathrooms. That wasn't even a question then. There's a growing solo dining movement. Are you familiar with this? It's kind of happening mostly, I think, through Eastern Asia, but certainly coming into the West as well. Restaurants are not just making space for solo diners. They are opening up restaurants with that as a sole focus. There's no space to dine with two people. And it's just interesting there can actually be a business model built upon even solo dining. And what does that say about the culture and what we're moving in? And most people who solo dine would say, I'm not alone, I have my phone. Isn't it interesting that the majority of our communication today is done while we are physically alone. That wasn't even possible a hundred years ago. With the advent of the telephone, you could actually be alone in a place, communing with someone in a different place. That certainly began the, the, the communication revolution in our world. But you think about the history of, of the world and communication, you could never communicate alone besides writing a letter and sending it off, but never any back and forth. Today, the majority of our communication is when we are physically alone. 
no conclusions on that, just eye-opening when we start to wrestle with, I want deep community and relationship to know and to be known, to have these kinds of pictures be true in my life. And it's good, it's a longing, and it's right. And it is possible. But what we have to understand is that to get there is going to be drastic change. And we're up against a culture, and I'd say an enemy who wants to keep us as isolated as possible. Jesus also had deep friendships and relationships like this. People loved Jesus. People liked Jesus, especially sinners, because he didn't come to condemn them. He welcomed them. He ate with them. He drank with them. He took extensive time with them. He did call them to life change, but that too was an expression of his love and his mercy to them. He was relentless in his encouragement and his call and his invitation to life, to purpose, to mission. Jesus too, like Paul, or I should say Paul, like Jesus, relied on the hospitality of others, needed it. He was homeless. He took his, I mean, certainly slept on the road many times, but he relied on the hospitality and the welcoming of so many. I, I am always struck by, and I hope you're reading through the Gospels with us. We're into Mark. If you're reading a chapter a day, Mark 16 ends Mark. Don't start Luke, you overachievers. Start reading Mark again from the beginning. Go back through Mark. Maybe you'll get through it a second time by the time we come to the end of the month. Then we'll move into Luke. Kind of soak in on one gospel account each month and then we'll rotate through for the whole year. So that hopefully that builds some, one, increases reading of God's word and looking to Jesus. But then even as we share, what are you seeing in Jesus? What are you reading? Oh, I just read that too. It might bring us together in some of our conversation. How could you not read through, now Matthew read through a couple times, Mark Mark 16, so getting through Mark, to see the unhurriedness of Jesus, to see the pace of his life is so striking. This posture of unhurry, long meals, extended times, withdrawing to pray, walking everywhere he went. I looked this up, and there's a couple different accounts, but trying to just add up the miles by reading the gospel account of how, how far Jesus would have walked to go from town to town and place to place and was somewhere in the neighborhood of, one account, 3,125 miles in three years, about 20 miles a day. And if you would do some math, 700 to 800 hours spent walking, depending on the pace and the terrain. Now, I'm just saying Nobody in the history of the world had more to accomplish than Jesus. He was sent to start a worldwide, never-ending, always-expanding movement, organization, institution, whatever you want to call it. And he had to do it in three years. And if that doesn't convict us on the pace of our hurried life, I don't know what does. Jesus could have acquired a horse. Now, that was often for the more rich or powerful or elite. So give him a donkey. That seems more in keep. In, in keep. So he could, have, he could have gone to two or three times as many places if he could have found a different mode of transport. Unless there was something missional, purposeful in walking places, in that pace of life. And again, we come with 
No conclusions. I'm not saying sell a car, get a bike, or walk, or move into a place where you'll... I'm not concluding that. We are in a very different world. I'm just convicted that to have the deep kind of community and relationships that we see on the pages of Scripture that we long for requires drastic change. The Holy Spirit will lead us and convict us with encouragement toward those changes if they're to change. Lord, help us. So there's TED Talk number one. Number two, hearing God's voice. Oh, I, have, I love this phrase, and there's a, a book on my shelf uh, called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, written by John, John Mark Comer, and it was a quote from Dallas Willard. And I just, it resonates with me. I think we do need today a ruthless elimination of hurry to get on the pace of Jesus in life. If we are to be followers of Jesus in his way, it needs to kind of look like that. Bringing it into the 21st century, that's fine. But where do those parallels exist? Hearing God's voice. Now this too could be an entire sermon. After all, we're taking six weeks in our in our growth group on Tuesday nights, titled Hearing God's Voice, the reality that we want to know the voice of God and respond to it. That's actually the biblical definition of prophecy, probably the most succinct definition I can give. Now, I say the word prophecy, and there's probably a hundred different thoughts, or maybe 200 definitions of what that could mean. Prophecy is simply hearing God's voice, His word, and making it known. And so there's lots of ways of knowing God's voice. There's lots of ways that God speaks. God is a speaking God. It's actually the first thing that he does on the pages of Scripture, the first thing above all creation. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 describes that God created all things, and then we see God in action, and that action is a word. God said, let there be light. He didn't wave his hand, whatever that would look like for the spirit form of God. He didn't give a nod. He didn't push the chips in. He didn't mold anything. He spoke. Let there be light. And he created the whole world like that. He's a speaking God. And ever since, he has been communicating his will, his character to his people in an infinite number of ways. There's some primary ones that rise above. He certainly communicates himself in creation and all that is made from the grand to the minuscule. He communicates through his angels, sent messengers. He communicates to prophets, either in seemingly an audible type voice that they then bring to God's people, or or through deep impressions that they write down, through visions, through dreams, through trances of some kind. He speaks through one another. He speaks through his written word, clearly, that we have now preserved. He continues to speak. It is living and it is active. But above all, God's revelation of himself is the living word, that being Jesus. The author of Hebrews 1.1 starts his letter this way, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers and to the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the fulfillment of all things. He's the climax of God's revelation. Jesus claimed this in Luke 24, 27. He taught the disciples. This is after his resurrection. He's on the road again, walking with them. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of scripture points to Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that he is the center point and the fulfillment of all that was written. So we praise God for his word. This clear universal revelation that unifies all of God's people around the globe. But that doesn't mean that God is done speaking. He is always a speaking God. Now we tend to believe he's not speaking in new ways that change what he has said. God does not change. So we have the scriptures as they are, unchanging, forever. We do not need a new revelation, a new enlightenment. We need greater understanding. We need illumination. We need that, what I prayed earlier, open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, to know you more fully. And that's the Holy Spirit's work amongst us. The Holy Spirit can bring to mind, as Jesus said, all that I've spoken to you, you will remember. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do for us. Even though we weren't there in person, in spirit, we can remember the will of God. Pretty amazing thought. God continues to speak to impress hearts, to stir hearts. We know this because in Acts 2, it teaches us this, that at Pentecost, God poured out his spirit in fulfillment of the prophet Joel, this is Acts 2.17. In these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And young men shall see visions, and old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. They shall hear God's voice and make it known. That's what prophecy is. It may simply be God's scripture that is brought to mind in the moment and is proclaimed that it's something God wants to hear. But prophecy is more than what I'm doing right now, explaining, expounding on the scriptures. God may use it in a prophetic way, but prophecy is a little bit different, hearing and responding. And that's what we see in a narrative form in Acts 20 and 21. Paul is constrained by the Spirit. Somehow he knew God told him, go to Jerusalem. At times, through Acts, God shows up in a vision, through an angel, in a dream. There's those expressions of God speaking. We're not told what that was for Paul, but he knows without a doubt that it is God's will. Now imagine, don't you want to hear God's will so clearly that you're absolute certain. For Paul, this was going to lead to his arrest and his death, and he kind of knew it. His journey back to Jerusalem, by the way, at tangent, maybe I'll preach on this in the next day or two, or next sermon or two, it's kind of following Jesus' call back to Jerusalem at the end of his life, knowing what it was going to bring. His arrest, his imprisonment, his false accusation, and ultimately his death. Paul was following that same journey. He's a follower of Jesus. But did you notice, if you heard through this, or maybe you've studied this passage before, it says that the believers in the Spirit were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Philip has four daughters who are prophesying. Again, they might have been eight, as young as eight years old, but probably teenagers, knowing how to hear God's voice and make it known. So that can happen at a young age. And, and Luke records it as commonplace, because it was, since Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on all peoples. No distinction. That's why it says sons and daughters, old and young, slave and free, to say there's, there's, no, there's no special people out there that hear the voice of God. There's some that are gifted in it, but all 
who are filled with the Spirit can know God's voice and make it known. And then you have Agabus. We meet Agabus, the prophet. So apparently he had one of those gifts and in dramatic fashion takes Paul's belt and ties it up and says, so this, this is what's going to happen to the one who owns this belt if he goes to Jerusalem. Okay, I get it, Agabus. I get it. I've heard it all along. Now, that doesn't mean that, doesn't mean that Agabus was wrong or that Paul was wrong. The Spirit actually said the same thing all along. The interpreter of the message took it, made it personal, I guess is the way to say it. Paul knew the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem. He was constrained. We're not told how or why. It'd be nice to know. The Bible doesn't tell us all that we want to know. It tells us all we need to know. So those that were getting the same image from the Spirit that here's Paul's end. It's going to lead to his imprisonment. Ultimately, it would lead to his death years later. They didn't want that, so they made it personal. The Spirit is revealing that this is what's going to happen, Paul. Personally, I don't want to see that happen. Don't go. Don't go. Please. And Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I must go. I can do no other. I know what's coming. Don't you want to live with that kind of awareness of God's voice in your life? That even when someone, a loved one comes to you, a spouse a brother, a friend, and says, please reconsider. I think God is saying this is going to be hard. And they really believe it, and it may be very true to know what God has constrained you to do, to know his voice and respond to it. And again, we're not told the steps to take. We're told a story, the story of Paul's life Here's what we know. He came to know and respond to God's voice, and it didn't happen overnight. It happened through years of seeking after God, of depending on Jesus for all things, for his very survival, of praying day and night, of praying with others, of calling the church to pray for him relentlessly. It came because he gave all of his life away. No earthly thing had any hold on him. For Paul, to live was Christ and mission. To die is gain. That's what it takes. You know, like learning an instrument. As I often say, it takes 10,000 hours to become a master at something. Depends if you also have a natural gift, by the way. But if you, if you don't have that natural gift, like me, who took the piano lessons, and it was just clear, I could memorize notes. In fact, I was better at learning the notes, memorizing them, and playing the song with no rhythm or tempo than I was at actually feeling the music and responding to it. And I know that now. It's just as I sing. I don't think I'm singing on tune. I'm not tone deaf. I know I'm out of tune. So at least I have self-awareness, which is why I like the music loud, so I can sing as loud as I want and not bother the rest of you. You may have the gift, you may not have the gift, but that doesn't mean you can't sit down at the piano in a short order, play a tune. So can a child. And in our spiritual life, as, as Philip's young daughters show us, they learned how to play a tune, how to hear from God, commune with him because of the spirit within them, and make it known. It may have been simple, but that doesn't matter. So just because it takes, it could take years to get to a place where, Holy Spirit, I hear you, and I'm on that course for the rest of my life. How did you know, Paul? I, I just know. I don't know how to describe it. I just feel it. 
You musicians would say the same thing. I don't even, I don't think about it. How do you know? It's in harmony. By the way, God's voice, two things, is always in harmony with what he's always said. There'll be nothing in scripture that says, well, I get, but God spoke to me. I know that scripture says that, but God spoke to me. No, that doesn't work that way. God speaks in harmony. It resonates. It's not dissonant. So we always test by God's word because he's unchanging. I said two things, I think. I lost the second. I'll come back to it. Paul, like Jesus, knew the voice of God and responded to it. Oh, second thing. It's always, it's always encouraging. Okay, so as God speaks, or hopeful, I should say. It may be hard because it may require change. For Paul, that was not an easy word to receive. Your life will be cut short. It will be continually painful. It will lead to arrest. Do you want to hear that? But it will be encouraging because, one, you'll know it's, if you know it's the voice of God, it's always encouraging because it's God's will. Two, there will be hope in it, purpose in it, life, freedom, joy. The enemy will bring condemnation. He'll, he'll bring past conviction to you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you can't change. I mean, if, if this is God's word to you, you'll never be able to fulfill it. All of those kinds of condemning things. That's how another test of the voice of God as we seek to learn it. Jesus said, John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. Clearly, Paul was trying to follow Jesus and had come to hear his voice and respond to him. Is this not the whole course of of our life, ultimately, to know God's voice and respond. Jesus said in John 10, 3, the sheep, that's us, the sheep hear his voice, the shepherd. He calls out to his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for he, for they know his voice. He's the good shepherd. Shepherds in that day didn't corral the sheep and push them forward or have dogs or horses that pushed them forward, they called them, they walked ahead, and the sheep followed. There was relationship because they lived and dwelt with the sheep, and their voice was trusted because it always led to pasture and to water. They would not follow a thief or a robber or a voice they didn't know. Sheep are not that smart, but they can learn voice and follow. So that gives us hope in following Jesus. This doesn't happen overnight, but through these years of seeking, of prayer, of knowing God's Word, and responding to it. So, TED Talk number three, living with purpose. Okay, I don't have time for it all, so let me just give you the, the nuts and bolts, the cliff notes of the TED Talk. How about that? Living with purpose, and I think we've preached this enough that I don't need to re-preach it and come back to it next week. We'll see it again and again. Paul lived on mission to go and make disciples of all nations. That's his general call. That's ours too. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For us, that's you'll be my witnesses right where you live, in the region, to people even not like you, and ultimately with a mindset to the ends of the earth, to all peoples. We all share that call. And so Paul was on it. Now, Paul got a specific marching order also, given in Acts 9 through Ananias. Ananias, go, because Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and before kings 
and also the children of Israel. But he gave him a specific call to preach in places that the name of Jesus had never been heard. Some of us will get that specific call in our life, an expression of the bigger call, and we're without doubt, we know for certain, we must, we cannot do anything else. We must do this. As I'll often say to potentially aspiring pastors or those considering changing a career to go into full-time vocational ministry, if you can do anything else, do it. Not if you're able or capable. Pastoring's not a last resort. It's if you're just wondering, well, that sounds nice. Maybe I'll give that a try. No, no. You must be constrained by the Spirit that you, you cannot do anything else. I don't even know if I can make a living on it, but I must go forward. That was Paul's response to a specific call. And we may get a specific call like that, but let's follow the general call first. I meet with a lot of guys and a lot of young men too that feel like they have no clear purpose, no clear direction, and therefore sometimes discouraged or hopeless. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have purpose. You have mission. You have a vision. Start following it in making Jesus known in all places, in every field that you're already planted in. There are lost peoples everywhere that need to know the hope and love of Jesus. That's your purpose. Even going again tomorrow, maybe some of you have the day off, praise the Lord, but if not, going on a Monday morning with that alarm, you're going into the mission field. Where is God sending you? It might be, it might be the worst job, the one you don't want to be in forever. That's okay. But you have mission. You have purpose. You have been called. You're the only one sent into that field. You're the only one with a potential open ear to that need, with the hope of the gospel for that need. Be on mission. In that, you may also then receive that specific marching orders. Remember how Paul got it, by the way? Jesus met him on the road, blinded him, and said, I'm taking your whole life over. And it will look like this, and it will end with suffering and with death. So for you out there saying, I just want that mission, I want that call, I want that clarity, be careful what you're praying for. You already have a mission. You already have a purpose. Live on it and live into it. Let's see if that's enough for the cliff notes. Let me end with this. This is what Jesus said to all of us. Mark 8, 34 and following. Calling the crowd to him. So this is people that are just at this point even interested in Jesus or intrigued by him. Not just the disciples because it says calling the crowd to him with his disciples. He says this. That includes everyone in this room today. Whether you're already a follower of Jesus or whether you are part of that crowd of I'm just right now kind of intrigued about Jesus. In fact, I'm not even sure why I'm here. He says to you, this is the reason you're here. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. Do not turn away from the invitation to give all of your life to the one who promises the fullness of life and all eternity in its place. 
Be not mistaken. You are giving your life away to something and someone. What will it gain you to gain all the world and yet forfeit your soul? Maybe, just maybe, as we say yes to this invitation, to this mission, we will also find our specific marching orders. But to tie this all together, I said I would. As you follow on mission, you will learn to hear the voice of God because you will be seeking Him desperately. You'll be praying every day. You'll be communing with Him because He's your only hope. Without Him, you will fail. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. And you will build incredibly rich relationships along the way with people who are likewise giving all to follow hard after Jesus. You will need one another. You'll depend on one another. There's no such thing as a solo missionary. If you're on your own, you're not a missionary. Jesus always sent out two by two or into teams. Paul always traveled that way. The church never gives up meeting together, but continues to come together to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, and all the more as we see the day approaching. So how does this sound? Too good to be true. Deep friendships, hearing the voice of God for you, for others, and living with an absolute clear purpose and mission. Paul models it because he learned it from Jesus. It was normative, and it's the normative life that we're all called to. Will we say yes today to this invitation, or will we look at it, count the cost, and walk away sad like the rich man? I pray it not be. Worse than dying is never living the life we were created for. Let me call the team and respond with this prayer. The prayer that we began with, the prayer we'll end with. Constrain us, Holy Spirit. Give us no other way or desire but your will and yours alone for your glory to be known and seen through us, your church. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. In your holy name we pray. Amen.